Hello, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am your host, not Sean, known as Teos. Um, I'm looking around. I'm seeing another pool of blood. Uh, it's There's a sign here that says on vacation, but I think that means he's probably also wrestling monsters on his monster project. project. But uh, I'm joined by Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Hello, Scott. Hello, Teos. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Always great to have you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy talking about gaming, and I don't get a chance to do it that often. It's always well, really nice to, uh, <laughs> it's nice to sit in on stuff like this. Well, please do come and opine here, uh, Scott. For those who don't know, absolutely amazing part of D and D history. Uh, you, Scott, have touched just about everything in Five E, uh, a ton of Four E and Three E products. Um, you've also edited all kinds of things, uh, Mike Shea's books. I think that's why they're, you know, readable. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They're great. Anyway, um, you've worked with James Hake. Um, you know, Sean and James and I raved about you a couple of weeks ago. So thank you for everything you do. And, and yeah, is there anything you'd want to share that I didn't just mention for folks? Uh, like no, that you always make me feel so special. I think <laughs> good. Well, you deserve it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. I think, cause I've been freelancing on D and D since 2004 and I continue to do so. I hope I get to continue to do so. D and D is just a, it's a, it's a huge part of my life. I love working with RPGs. I love talking about them, and I'm really yeah. happy to be here. That's great. Well, it, it is the dream, and it's awesome, and, and we love looking up to you and thinking, wow, that is possible. So That's cool. very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right, so you know, you know the deal. We're going to chat about some news, and then we're going to talk about a topic, and the topic this week will be, well, since we've been, Sean and I have been digging into intro adventures and how various adventures start, and how they make them easy for new uh, DMs and even new players. We're going to take a look at your product, the Hidden Halls of Hazakor, yeah, and uh, and break that down and see what it does in this department. Yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. So for the news, uh, we start with the the if you are all attuned to social media, you know that Wild Beyond the Witchlight previews are out. Um, the marketing team has clearly, uh, woken up and they are sending everybody <laughs> copies. There are first, it was previews on various websites, the various news sites. Uh, and now various Twitter folks have copies and are sharing pictures and thoughts. So it's pretty hard to, to avoid spoilers. We're going to go fairly lightly over some things, but if you want to be completely spoiler free, this is where Scott and I would say that you could just, you know, hit forward a couple times for just, you know, three minutes or something like that and avoid it. But, um, yeah, let's talk about a little bit about what we see. Polygon, and I know, Scott, you can't super opine because you worked on this, so you're bound by NDAs I, and stuff. I actually didn't can... work on this book, but I have oh, read it already. Okay. I've seen I've seen some advanced stuff, so yeah. there's, there's, there's not much I can probably say aside from, yeah, this is, all the stuff you're going to talk about is really, really cool. There's, <laughs> awesome. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this book. So Polygon talked about something that we've reviewed before through Unearthed Arcana, the new fairy and herringon or rabbit folk ancestries. I have one friend in a game that's already planning on playing a rabbit folk. Um, and we, year, we learned that years ago, the team was looking for inspiration and Ari Levitch stumbled upon an illustration of rabbit brigands. <laughs> and this became the conversation and impetus behind bringing these herringons 
into, which is funny if you say Herengan, which maybe is the way you're supposed to uh, pronounce it, but the Herengans uh, into the game. Um, the the Polygon article also talks about what the Fey Realms are like, including a neat aspect of how emotions can impact your surroundings, which is very cool. Um, I love the Fey world um, and, and, and all that it does. So I'm very excited to see how that comes across. The, the sort of whimsy, the puzzles, the fun games, the uh, tricks, you know, owing debts, all that's awesome. Um, then on IGN, they discussed some of the games that you can play and prizes you can win at the carnival. I'm not going to go into that because I think that's, that's very spoilery uh, for players, but that's excellent stuff. On Kotaku, Chris Perkins describes how the adventure is a mix of whimsy with sinister and grim situations. Very fairy tale style. At its core, it deals with themes of time and theft as they deal with a coven of hags. And he goes into some of the nostalgic elements that they drew in, which I think is pretty neat. Like, you know, Scott, you probably know this, that in OD&D, mm -hmm. the bugbear image has a pumpkin for a head, right? Yeah. So I guess in this adventure, we get to see bugbears that wear pumpkins as helmets. Yeah, it's fun. That's clever. That's, that's a really neat idea. Um, the 1980s D&D cartoon, we've talked about being an influence and in how Will Doyle and Stacey Allen worked on that and, and used those influences. That's super neat. And then it's said that The Wizard of Oz and Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes are two of the biggest influences. Um, so that we'll see how. Yeah, that that for me was the most. I mean, every, everything else in the book is cool. The new rules, the new lineages. It's all it's all really really good stuff. The talking about something being inspired by Ray Bradbury in general, and talking about something being inspired by something wicked this way comes in particular, uh, is such a cool such a cool touchstone. And it's definitely it's definitely apt for for some of the stuff going on in the book. I'm glad to hear that. Sometimes yeah. I've felt like in the past that they would say, you know, the the theme is, and I'd go, yeah, okay. Like, I think the Wizard of Oz was an influencer out of the abyss, if I remember correctly. And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. Um, the adventure strives to make the domains of delight as big in the minds of players and DMs as the domains of dread, which is interesting. Um, I am more of a Feywild person than I am a Ravenloft person. So that's that's fine with me. Yeah. Um, Chris Perkins and Ari Levich discuss in a video that's out on the D&D YouTube channel, how the book has new DM tools. And this is interesting, especially we've been talking about how to make the game easy, accessible for DMs. So they talk about how guidance is added that uh, maybe isn't in the DMG and should have been, like whether to share monster hit point values. So there's some some advice that comes in the book. That's neat. Yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's, it's a good little section up front that covers a lot of this stuff. Uh, and it's really, really good information. That, like the, the last couple of shows that you and Sean have done talking about you know, how is it, what's, what's the best approach to making an adventure friendly for new dungeon masters, for people yeah. who are just sort of sitting down the chair for the first time? I don't think there's any one right answer, but this is certainly, it's a really, really good approach, uh, what this book does. I think awesome. a lot of people are going to be really happy with it. That's great. And Chris says the adventure's carnival start is good for new DMs, helps them feel more prepared. And the way that the domain of Prismere is set up, the, the, the Feywild land, it has discrete locations. So he thinks that makes it run, makes running it easier. Uh, each section has different random encounters you can add when needed. And there's a little more freedom and play that you can choose to do. So I'm excited to look at that. Um, Ari Levich says the adventure has lots of tables that help a DM add to the adventure, like Fey trinkets, things like that. 
Chris shares some new monsters. The Glasswork Golem, which I think is, you know, there was a 3E stained glass golem. I don't know if it's older than that, but I remember fighting that and enjoying it greatly. Um, ambulatory Singing Mushrooms come back. The Campestry from 2E. Can't get enough uh, Singing Mushrooms. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I, stuff like that. Monsters that have concepts like that, right? So much fun. Yeah. Role-playing cards. This is really neat. Playing card-sized... Uh, one for each NPC with role-playing information on the back. So the DM can have these. One presumes that they'll give us this in some way as a PDF so that we don't have to tear up our book. Uh, but the idea you can have these little cards and use those as guidance. That's neat. Mm. A story tracker to track events and, and that are happening in the adventure. Um, and there's also a lore you should know regarding etiquette in the Feywild the, where Ari Levich uh, did that show. So that's great. I mean, I think that's one of the super awesome things about Feywild is things like gifts and, and how they play out. Um, also quickly mentioned, Gale Force 9 has a slew of products. As usual, they're going to have a DM screen again. This DM screen uh, focuses on the carnival scenes and games. I actually like it when their screens do that because I actually don't mind switching around screens. And so it doesn't have to work all mod long. So it sounds like it's carnival focused, and I think that's great. Um they have unpainted minis. These are kind of spoilery. We see that Igwilv is here, as well as, a, as well as a group of hags known as the Hourglass Coven, which um, we had sort of heard that Tasha works with the Hourglass Coven, so that gives us some of the lore that's taking place here. Uh, minis of the Archfey Zibilna, as well as Rabbit Folk. Um, all these are unpainted. And there are similar WizKids minis uh, or Gale Force 9 will have similar minis to the ones that WizKids has for the various heroes and villains like Kellek, Warduke, and others. Um, one last bit of Gale Force 9 news, just tacking in here, that they are remaking the Tyrants of the Underdark board game, which was done by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, uh, who both worked on Lords of Waterdeep, so you know how good they are. Um, it's cheaper, and it includes the expansion in it, so just 50 bucks. It's a really fun game. I've played it. Have you ever played this, Scott? I have not played it. No, I actually I haven't played Lords of Waterdeep either. I just have just. Uh, I know. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. Wow. I don't. I don't leave my house often enough. <laughs> they even <laughs> have it on you know uh, the App Store. You can play yeah. it through that. It, it that is a brilliant game. You really do. Oh yeah, need no. To get every it. literally every single person I know who has played it raves about it. I haven't heard it, one, it's, one even slightly dissatisfied take on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to say it's not your favorite game, but it has to be like up there. It's it's really so yeah. good. And uh, Tyrants of the Underdark is is it's not at that level, but it is very fun uh, cool. and has a it's a different type of game, but it is it is a fun game and very cleverly built. Switching topics: new Wizards of the Coast job postings. Uh, Allison Lures, who is the creative manager of World Building, she posted that the Wizards of the Coast Digital Publishing Group is hiring a narrative lead. Uh, so this is the group that works on video games and other digital areas. They're looking for storytellers who thrive generating new ideas and incubating new stories. Uh, encourages any related field. If you're a playwright, a screenwriter, you know, shoot your shot. So check out the Twitter link that we have in our show notes and also the direct link to the job posting. Liz Lam Farrow, who is the director of global brand marketing for Magic the Gathering, she shared that her team needs three new people. They're all different types of brand managers, global brand manager, brand manager, and associate global brand manager for Magic Digital, uh, and I think Magic the Gathering in general. So uh, check out those posts if you're interested in more of the Magic side and being a brand manager. 
this may indicate more jobs in the future too. They tend to kind of come in big droves. So keep a, if you're interested in that, keep an eye on their job site. Um, next up, we've got the Neverwinter MMO teasing dragons. I thought this was very interesting. They on Twitter revealed a like trailer that had swirling script and then the date of October 1st, like the geek that I am. I looked up the script, found it was draconic script. The center says red, the outer names are the names of all the chromatic and metallic dragons. And then I said, great. I spent my time on that. <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> uh, and then I felt sad and didn't tell my wife about it. Um, but, uh, this apparently is some kind of content that's being added to the game and probably, you know, almost assuredly some tie into Fizzman's Treasury of Dragons, the upcoming source book. But then last night, an article on Bleeding Cool says there's going to be a battle pass to a ever evolving campaign called Echoes of Prophecy. Uh, then it also said it has three milestones. So I don't know exactly how ever evolving and three milestones compares, but at least three evolving uh, campaign. And it's all about the Cult of the Dragon, which I found very interesting because, as I know Neverwinter fairly well, it has had a ton of Cult of the Dragon and Faction Alliance content that recently was removed. So maybe they're just going to sort of reinsert it, you know, into a special sort of experience. Uh, I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see how they do that. And, and, I mean, the Cult of the Dragon is a great cult to go up against. So that'll be fun. Absolutely, yeah. Adventurers League uh, published an article on the Yawning Portal blog site called Less Rules, More Play. I immediately had to ask Scott if it shouldn't be fewer rules, um, <laughs> but uh, because my mom's an English teacher. And what this is about, it's actually a really neat blog post that says that Adventurers League is taking a look at where it is right now so it can chart where it wants to go. And uh, Chris Tulak, who is the author of this, also said on Twitter, there's a lot more to come. Uh, they're looking at clearer communication, making things easier for new players and DMs, easier for players and DMs to connect with one another. So we are going to see a regular blog series uh, with their initiatives. And right now you can get a download of the very short player rules uh, through the Discord, the D&D Discord in the AL area. And they're asking you for your input on these rules. Uh, fans have already given rave reviews to these rules because they seem to do away with a lot of sort of what have felt like artificial separations that make it hard to jump into the game. Um, you know, things where you might go to a convention and play one game and then go to your next one and they tell you, I'm sorry, you need a new character. You played, you know, the wrong type the first time. Um, so that kind of stuff seems like it's going away, which is really good news. So I'm excited to see more of this. And I think Sean and I will take a look at this document and opine on it next show now scott what's wrong with the world of supply chains <laughs> um the world of supply chains as lots of people are reading about and as lots of folks are writing about is having a weird kind of a breakdown right now um and it's an interesting story because i think for for a lot of folks myself certainly included the problems that we've had with shipping and with and with uh, with the availability of you know raw materials and resources and things during the first I was going to say the first part of the COVID 
uh, pandemic, but that's probably the, that's, that's the worst possible way to want to look at it. The initial stages of where we've come to now in terms of, in terms yeah. of the pandemic, it kind of seemed like that was going to be like a, like a problem at the outset and things would start to get back to normal a little after a while, once, once there, you know, there were some adjustments in the markets and all that. And it doesn't seem to have been happening because a lot of people now are looking at even bigger disruptions, uh, being unable to get stuff to um, wholesalers and distributors and retailers, being unable to get, uh, there's a big problem uh, with, with the availability of paper for printing yeah. right now, which is affecting a lot of different people, both in North America, printers in Asia, printers in Europe. So it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a potentially scary story and I hope it, uh, I hope it has a happy outcome. Yeah. And, and I mean, for those that aren't aware, all of our books, economy is based on paper plus board games all have paper components because paper is cardboard and all that boxes um and one thing that's interesting is the price of printing was already going up before this news and so when groups are saying a it's more expensive to print than before oh by the way we have supply crunches and the price of paper goes up we could see a lot of things go up and board game companies have been uh sort of raising the 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 caution flag for quite some time um, so it, it really has wide-ranging impacts. So ICV2 posted an article that's a part of a regular blog series where they have Scott Thorne, who owns a store, share various insights that they have. And in this one, in this article on ICV2, he explains how retail stores ideally want just-in-time supply, right? So the perfect thing would be never deal with inventory. Nothing just sits unsold on your shelves. You walk in as a customer, they hand you the one copy they have. And then the next time somebody wants one, it immediately appears magically on the shelf, right? That'd be the dream. Um, but that can't happen. But you don't want to store tons of it. So ideally, what you want is some other entity absorbing the cost of holding all of your extra copies and then giving it to you really quickly so that you're refreshing your inventory constantly. That would be the dream. If you're a publisher or a distributor, you want the retailer to stock large quantities so that if five people walk into the store and want a copy each, all five are there and you know the product moves um so that balancing act is really is really delicate the idea that you don't want to put a bunch of inventory sitting on your shelf but you do want to be able to supply any number of customers that walk into your store with product and to try to make it work they try to have fewer links in the chain and try to keep everything moving at a very quick speed so right now that's not happening at all of course and and all of these different costs are all they're having impacts on one another right and and so that's a nice overview take a look at that article if you're interested in more on this topic and then on the heels of this article yesterday came a notice from ravensburger and they are an enormous company that operates internationally uh, i believe out of germany originally and they um in their north america ceo has just said, sent a letter to distributors and retailers saying they are halting all orders in North America starting September 17th. So by the time you hear this, they will only work on fulfilling current orders because that's all they can manage to do, if that. And this yeah. is all based on supply chain trouble. Yeah, this this story in particular really absolutely knocked me down when I first read it because I... I I was trying to think of something comparable at some point in the past when there was this much of a disruption to the normal way that, you know, that, 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 that publishing and retail works together. And I honestly yeah. can't think of anything. 
you know, and the big, the big issue with something like this is like, you know, starting September 17th, they're not taking any additional orders. The Christmas shopping season nominally begins after, you know, uh, after American Thanksgiving, you know? Yeah. So it's like, if that's, if, if this sort of thing continues to there, what kind of disruptions is that going to, going yeah. to uh, spread into the Christmas shopping season potentially, which is where so many retail folks, you know, so many retail businesses make, make a, a big chunk of their annual income during that and, during that shopping period and the use of their wording of foreseeable future is yeah. just i mean that is you know we don't know when this will end is really bad news it's not like we need a month to work through these inventory issues it's just we don't know that this will ever work out and yeah. and one of the things that's there, there's two sides to this one is you know are you getting your product in to your warehouse so that you can fulfill an order but the other is, can you afford to? And that's been one of the sort of secret behind the scenes kind of conversations going on. And this has been on Kickstarter levels. It's been on company levels where some, some entities, and I don't know that it's Ravensburg in particular, but some entities have sort of said, I could technically fulfill the order, but only at a price that isn't profitable. And so I just can't afford to fulfill the order. And we may see more and more of that happen. Yeah. Just very scary. All right. Well, let's turn to positive news, Scott. Uh, <laughs> our last bit of news here is something that came from you. The Three Musketeers is out. Tell me yeah. about this awesome reimagining you did. This is a book. Um, this was a f really, really fun project that I've worked on over the last couple of years, kind of off and on in between other things. Um, it's an updated retelling of the classic Three Musketeers story, the classic a tale of intrigue and romance and adventure and swashbuckling and all that. Um, it had a really interesting genesis for me because it started off with me being annoyed um, at a group of idiots who were complaining about how um, uh, there shouldn't be any non-white people and women in historical fiction. Whew. And this, this kind of bounced around in my head. And I thought at some point on some level, what, what could I do that would really, really tick these people off? And this book is the result of that. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a reimagining of the original story. It's not. It's not a new book. It's not an update. It's not a, a a new novel set in the same world. It's the original novel by Alexandre Dumas and Auguste McKay. Uh, it's the William Robeson translation, which is I think from 1853. It's one of the one of the first English translations, one of the classic ones that you can still buy if you buy like a classic edition of the book. Um, but it's it's extensively revised and edited and clarified and expanded in a number of places and filled with characters who are people of color and who are queer and in many cases are both. Awesome. Um, yeah. And in order to, to make that world really come to life, um, I worked with the absolutely amazing Avivor, who yeah. illustrated the book. She did the cover and she did 25 really, really awesome interior illustrations. Um, if you've seen the Acquisitions Incorporated book, uh, you've seen Aviv's work. If you're a fan of Critical Role, you might have seen her as well. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a really cool project to work on. Lots of people liking it. Um, really, really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, excellent. And yeah. that's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, Drive-Thru, all kinds yeah, of places. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much everywhere, yeah. If you're on Drive-Thru, you can get it in PDF um, or a really, really hefty trade paperback. It's like 640 pages, I think, <laughs> or in hardcover. Uh, if you want to get it on Amazon, you can get the Amazon format ebook or the soft cover, and you can get it in ebook format pretty much everywhere else as well. Great. Yeah. So we have in our show notes a uh, link to Scott's announcement on Twitter. So that'll lead you to all of those different links too. 
All right, so now our main topic is the hidden halls of Hazakor. Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, an adventure for beginning game masters and first level characters. So that's the title. So you know that the intent was baked into it. Yeah. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the show, Sean and I have been discussing introductory adventures uh, from the general concept to specific examples of hardcover 5e books. And you, Scott, tackled this very subject. You wrote this adventure specifically to help brand new DMs. And I backed this on Kickstarter. And, and so I have, you know, the physical copy I'm holding up right here so Scott mm -hmm. can see it. And, um, you know, I looked at this when I, like, I do all things that I get. I have a rule where anything I back, I must sit down and look at it. And I remember enjoying it, but I had not, I think, thought of it through the lens that I have now, given all these discussions that Sean and I have had. Uh, and when I looked at it again, I was like, wow, you did a really good job on this well, thank to you. hit all these topics that we've been thinking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, so first thing, let's get this out of the, uh, uh, out there. Where do people get this if they want it? Uh, this is available at drive through RPG. Uh, it's awesome. available in PDF or in, uh, uh, paperback soft cover, uh, or you can buy both together. Um, you can also, if you're on uh, drive through RPG, there's a link somewhere there that also has uh, a link to my website, which has some extra downloadable stuff. There's pre-generated characters. There's some advice for if you want to scale the encounters for larger, or smaller parties, because that's not part of the original book for reasons I'll get into in a moment. So there is some extra stuff that you can, that you can grab as well, uh, whether you're playing the PDF or the, uh, or the uh, paperback version. Cool. All right. So how did you come about? How did this project come about? How did you, what, what, what was the impetus for this? The impetus for this was very specific. Um, some years ago, I was running an RPG club at the middle school where my wife teaches and where my daughters at that time were students. And we had a really great time. This was sort of the tail end of the 3.5 D&D uh, era. So got a whole bunch of kids playing D&D, many of them for the first time. And this is like, because this is the end of 3.5, there were lots of good low-level adventures out there. Dungeon Magazine uh, in particular had a, had a mm -hmm. ton of really cool stuff. But as I was helping people play and as people were kind of, you know, putting their games together, the one thing I noticed was that the expectation of most low-level adventures was that they were for DMs who had some experience of the game already. And so people who were just starting out, like very first time, not just first time running a game as a DM, but their first time playing D&D at all, right? It was really, really tough for them to kind of know what was going on. And I had sort of, there was a limit to how many games I could run around, how many tables I could run around to during the, during the club after school and kind of, you know, <laughs> sit down and talk to people. So at some point, very early on, I decided I was going to write a adventure, a starter adventure, specifically for these kids who were just starting out. And I would throw in all sorts of advice, little sidebars, how to do this, you know, how to, how to basically think about the things you need to do in the game for someone who's never played the game before. And it was a really big hit. Lots of people played it. Lots of people enjoyed it. And then the RPG club kind of faded away and I got busy with other stuff. But I kept thinking for many years, I should really dust this off and do something with it. And that finally happened about three years ago. I think it came out in 2018 in the summer. That's awesome. Yeah. And for folks who don't know this, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, what you'd so the adventure is basically, um, there's introductory information. There is coming, arriving at this town and getting to know the town. 
Um, and then there is going, you hear a, a clue, a rumor that leads you to explore some ruins. And there you find some pieces of, of lore about these ruins and you get to explore them and, and come out as young heroes. But in and around what maybe isn't an unbelievably uh, standout story, like it, it's, it's doing what we'd expect of an intro adventure. Uh, but in and around that, you provide all of this guidance from the beginning to the end um, with a lot of sidebars, which I think is awesome. Mm. And then even in the text itself, providing a lot of pointers uh, as some examples, like one that I thought was really neat is you break down talking and character. Yeah. In a very conversational way, you sort of say, hey, there are, you know, lots of ways to do this. Two of the main ones are that you might want to third person describe what your character does or you may want to speak as your character and there is no imperative that you do one or the other try them out have fun and you as dm can do the same thing you can speak in character or describe and, and you give examples of it and i just thought that was really neat um uh, you talk about the role of the DM and how players work together, how to get them collaborating. It's all just really thoughtful. So how did you approach coming up with this guidance? Like, the, Did you make a giant list of these or how did, how did it happen? Really, I, don't think, I, I don't remember making a list. I think it was mostly just, just being cognizant of the issues that I was seeing in the RPG club when we were playing with these, with these young first time DMS and also the things that I wish I had known when mm. I first started running games, yeah. I didn't start playing until high school. Like I wasn't as young as the kids in the club that were talking like, you know, 11, 12, 13. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was a few years beyond that, but even a few years beyond that, and even, you know, with a solid grounding in fantasy fiction and all that, there were so many things when I started playing D and D that just went right over my head in terms of, Oh, okay. I should not have done that. That was a really bad idea. My campaign just ground to a halt because of it, yeah. right? That kind of thing. And I'd always sort of kept an awareness of those things. And of course, you know, I read lots of advice from other people. I mean, you know, there, there, there are a few, I think, original and unique things in the book, but much of it is stuff that other people I'm sure have talked about, you know? Um, yeah. But one of the things about kind of looking to other people for advice and following people on Twitter and such, you know, for, for gaming advice is it's hard to keep it all in your head at the same time. Yeah. And so putting it all down in one place, I thought would be a, would be a really good idea. Um, the one thing about the book, I mean, it is a book for first time DMs, but it was also very specifically written for young DMs. Like I had, I, mm. it, you know, it, it, the, the target market for this was as narrowed as I could possibly make it, which is a wonderful marketing decision. You should always try to limit the number of people <laughs> who will read your work, you know? That, so yeah. it's, it's written in a very sort of a straightforward style. It's written for about an age 12 reader. You know, doing the editing, there was a lot of, you know, looking at the sentence construction and stuff like that, right? And it should be perfect for Sean then. So that's good. <laughs> you can, you can, you can help explain the bigger words to him. I'm sure that would be <laughs> fine. But, um, but yeah, and it, it, it I, I was surprised that it wasn't just that market that ultimately picked up the book and that have given me really good feedback on it. Um, I've heard from a lot of, a lot of uh, adult players who are playing D&D &D with their kids for the first time who are using yes. it as their starting stone, uh, their, their starting point. Because in it, it, 
in addition to being like a like a starter adventure with lots of advice, it's also a really good straightforward adventure that starts pretty simple and then gets more complicated as it goes on. So that players who are playing for the first time have a chance to sort of get a handle on their characters, get a handle on the world of the story and what's going on, and then add to it as sort of successive layers of narrative come in and complicate things a little bit, right? Um, And I've also heard from a number of adult DMs who are running games for the first time, and this is what they've picked up. And the feedback has been really, really, really positive. People People are getting everything out of it that I'd hoped they would get, which is really, really gratifying. I'll agree with that. I did not find reading it that it was, uh, you know, dumbed down or speaking to me like I was a child. It, it was more that it was very approachable. Yeah. And Thank there are probably a few points where I could discern that you were writing for a younger audience because of the way that you maybe phrase things. But it, but again, it wasn't it wasn't a hindrance to my enjoyment of it. And yeah. and like others have said, I found that it was very useful to sort of take a step back and, and relearn these things and think about them in a different way. It was great. Cool. So one of my big questions I've got to ask, do you think that wizards of the coast should incorporate some of this in every hardback, maybe in the basic rules as a free download? Like, shouldn't this information be standard? Should it be? I think it's an excellent idea. One of the things that I was, I was just looking at the, um, I just had, uh, for, had reason to look at the uh, the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak adventure and mm-hmm. the Essentials Kit uh, just not long ago. And I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before, and it's also in the starter set because I went and looked at that as well just to see if it was a new thing or an old thing. In both those books, they describe the core books as advanced rules, which I thought was really, really interesting. And huh. I'd never picked up on that before. You know, I think there's definitely there's definitely a need and there's definitely a market for more explanatory information, more talking about how to run an adventure for brand new DMs, talking about how to sort of put things together, how things might progress, how to deal with the adventure that's in the book kind of going off the rails a little bit if the players and the characters want to do things a little bit differently. Because if you're not prepared for that, that that's one of the toughest things to deal with yeah. as a DM, especially as a new DM. And that's something that gets talked a lot about in Hansacore. I personally think it would be really awesome for every hardcover adventure that anybody's doing, you know, uh, Wizards of the Coast or otherwise, to have a little free download talking about if you're first time DM, if you're a brand new DM, here are some extra things you might want to think about in this adventure. I mean, it's absolutely great to have adventures like Witchlight that are specifically geared towards new DMs and like the Essentials Kit and the Starter Set. And it's great to have that advice right in the book. But in addition to that, I think it would be useful to have it as a separate thing. I think that would be an, a really, really excellent idea because it's something that not everybody needs, but for the people who do need it, they need it in one place. They need it all kind of put together in a very, yeah. very straightforward fashion that they can then refer to. And it's interesting because there's lots of these things out there, like lots of bloggers, lots of folks on Twitter talk about like every time a new adventure comes out, they write their own kind of guides to it. You yes. know, this is what I did. You know, like if you're starting out, this is, you know, here's some things to think about. It would be really cool to see those sorts of products and those sorts of takes on it from actual players sort of, you know, being an ecosystem that's built on top of something that Wizards and and other publishers are doing as a first step, rather than just sort of stepping in to fill a gap where it seems like there may be some stuff that's missing from an adventure. And the IDM, uh, he and I were talking on his podcast about uh, sort of this flowchart idea, and, and he brought up the idea of shouldn't there be guides that tell you how to run an adventure online, like uh, a link to live play, 
um, that could even be up when right when the book launches, right? Have a table yeah. play through the first chapter or something and have it on there. And then we saw that in, in Witchlight, uh, there is a QR code. And if you scan it, you get to a survey. Well, you could also have a QR code that yeah. could lead to this type of information that you and it Absolutely, yeah, were talking yeah. about. I right? mean, especially with how many new players are coming into the game from watching streaming. I mean, there's, yeah. you, there's, no better, there's no better way to get a sense of how fun an adventure can be and what the story of the adventure is than watching other people kind of play through it. You know, for so many yeah. new players, that would just be, that would be a huge gift. I recently had an email uh, through my blog that said um, this person had been introduced to D&D. They're like our age, so they're, you know, in, in their young 20s. Uh, yes. I mean, 40s. Yes. Uh, and they, um, uh, his teenage daughter introduced him to Critical Role, and he had never played D&D, right? He'd always been like, I don't know, it sounds kind of nerdy, whatever. And he watches it and he goes, wow, this is what D&D can be like? All right, mm -hmm. you know, I'm in, you know, let's do this. Yeah. And so now he's, you know, finding places to play. And That's yeah, awesome. it speaks to that, right? That that visual it really has a different way of, of explaining the game. And, and that, yeah, I bet it is sort of jarring for some of those folks who maybe watch Critical Role and then they buy a book and they're like, oh, I've got to sit down and read all of this. Yeah. It's a very different experience. How do I yeah. make this like the thing I watched? And, yeah. yeah. By the same token, though, you know, for there, there are lots of people who are experienced DMs. They've been running games for ages, right? And it's always, it's always a really tough balancing act. How much stuff do you put into a book that's, that you know a certain segment of the readership is not going to need? Right. Yeah. They're going to look at it and say, oh, this is good advice, but I don't need that advice. You know, I'm just going to flip past it. Yeah, though I would argue, you know, when I read your book that it, it was very useful even though i would say i you know if, if someone asked me i my egotistical maybe response would be like oh i know that sure. but but reading it was helpful it, it i didn't feel like it was wasted words that i wouldn't want to see again right well that's nice yeah i mean re reinforcing reinforcing things that we know already is always a good thing i guess you know and especially for gaming like being a dm is so much is so much of like an improvisational experience, not just in the sense you're making up story and making up, you know, what NPCs are saying, but you're, you're effectively sort of stitching a narrative together in real time, free form. Yeah. And one of the downsides of that is it gets really easy to forget stuff. I joke constantly about I have my superpower is the ability to forget monster special abilities when I'm running combat. <laughs> and we will get to the end of combat and the players will go, hey, shouldn't that monster have you know done X at the beginning and we should have made a saving throw? And I'm like, yes, there's some mysterious reason why that monster doesn't have that power active right now. And you'll have to figure out what it is. And I'll quickly try to figure out what that might be for next week. Well, rather like than saying, admit I'm just a fool. I like saying, um, you don't know why the monster didn't use this power last round, but now it yes. uses it twice to make up for that. <laughs> <laughs> that I just uh, hit them two times in a row because I'm like, you know, I will, like, I, will ha I will have to remember that one. I would have done this last time, so here it is. Yeah. Um, and they they laugh at me and mock at me, which I deserve. Yes. Um, all right, so let's get into a little bit. I want to dissect the adventure yes. a little bit so that folks can kind of grasp some of what happens and some of the the brilliant design here. Okay. Um, all right, so you chose to have them begin their career, adventuring career, by walking into the town of Purdy's Rest. Uh, yes. Why did you decide to start with a, a town like that? A couple of different reasons. One is, I mean, on, on the most obvious level, this, this entire adventure is like a real, it's a, it's a love letter to keep on the borderlands and in uh -huh. search of the unknown. 
Okay. I, I think that, anybody, yeah. anybody who reads it, who knows those adventures will definitely pick that up. Those were the, In Search of the Unknown was the first adventure I ever, the first written adventure I ever played in as a, as a, as a player. Uh, mm -hmm. We've done a couple of kind of just like, you know, quick improv, you know, I'm going to draw a dungeon on a, on a piece of paper kind of thing before that. But it was the first one that was more extensive and had sort of a story and had some theme to the location. And of course, like many people, Keep on the Borderlands was the first adventure I ever read in the Holmes Blue Box. Right, yeah. which it was part of for many, many years. So yeah, I mean, both those things are, are absolutely sort of integral to to my my play experience, and I really, really like the setup of both of those. Um, the other more important reason, though, is the experience of playing with these kids in the RPG club is that they like getting immersed in the world a lot. And I don't know that that's a universal experience for young players. I'm not saying it's necessarily, you know, better or worse than, than an approach where you just kind of, you know, start off with a bang and here's a fight that you're in the middle right. of suddenly and we'll explain later. Because I, like I like that approach. I like that, mm -hmm. that general advice of like, you know, when you're starting off your session, start it off with some action because yep. it definitely works, right? But I found that they really, really enjoyed that kind of immersion. And I think for, from my experience with this, with these, you know, this, these, these particular groups of kids, right. There's this sense of I'm playing a character and my character can do anything. And for them, one of the most important and exciting things their character can do is go shopping. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It was just, I, I was surprised at how, with how much fervor they embrace that aspect of it. I'm like, here's the list of things you can buy. I can buy cheese. I'm going to go buy some cheese. <laughs> right. That reminds so me I of want... a middle school player who was in my recent campaign who um, his character was all about cheese and okay. was constantly seeking cheese. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to sort of leave that as an option, right? So that, mm -hmm. so that brand new young players, brand new players could come in and kind of get a feel of themselves as being in a world not yeah. just being in an adventure. And there are options at the beginning. There's a little bit where it talks about if you really want to get to the action, then you just, you basically have them come into Purdy's rest and they meet the quest giver NPC. They get a secret map and off they go. You know, yeah. you can literally do that in five minutes at the beginning of your first session if you want to, right? But for players who want to engage with the world a little bit more, there's this little, there's, there's this keep, which is on, you know, some borderlands effectively. Right. Uh, yeah, and they get yeah, to hang uh, out there. Very... They get to meet people. They get to interact with the world as opposed to just being part of the adventure. And I think both of those things are equally valid and both are equally interesting and both are really, really fun. But it's a different kind of fun. And I want to just make sure that uh, that the adventure had both. And it feels like you chose uh, NPCs and sort of stores, locations that have some interesting engagement um, like I'm thinking of the smithy who can craft metal items, but for wooden parts, you've got to go talk to the woodcarver. So if you want a crossbow, sure, I can make the metal parts. The stock will have to come from the woodcarver. So go talk to them. Yeah. And I, I like that it feels very real, but also it involves you, right? It makes you understand this is a bigger world. Yeah, there are there, there are so many easy ways to make the world feel real to players, you know, just, just in terms of the, the way that their characters interact with it. Um, and often it's, it's, it's very simple things. Uh, there's one thing in the book, uh, there's a table of NPC quirks, right? And again, this isn't a new idea. Lots of people talk about this approach. Uh, I may have stolen it directly from someone. If so, I can't remember who, so I apologize for not being able to credit you off the top of my head, you know, but it's this idea, just like, just have one little quick thing, quick, unusual thing that the NPC does a visual yeah. thing or a verbal thing. And it helps to anchor the NPC in the minds of the players, right? It gives them a sense of who this person is. And also that this person is not just a name, 
you know, and a stat block and a set of, of things they can do for you. Right. Yeah, it's a great, and I like that, you know, you don't just do that. You then have a sidebar on NPCs with this advice and saying, Hey, most of these NPCs have a quirk, start with the quirk. Then so you reveal that and make it memorable. Here's my name, my quirk, basically almost in the same experience. Yeah. And then, then that will, and use that every time so that they know, um, like I, I thought it was funny. You have this tall person who's very tall and they might ignore a gnome or halfling character because they don't see them. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I'm stealing that for my future <laughs> games because that is, you know, it's, it's a thing that we forget, but it's so, I think great when we do that because the gnome or halfling characters feel special, right? Like I'm different. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm this little person yeah. and you're recognizing my character in that moment. And it's yeah. Neat. And one of the important things, again, like one of these, one of these kind of subliminal lessons that we all learn as DMs is it's easy to do these things, right? Once you've got them pointed out to you, it's very yeah. difficult to come up with these ideas on your own. Right. So like at some point when you're introducing a brand new NPC, even if it's like a monster in the, in the dungeon that the character suddenly said, Hey, let's talk to this person, you know, instead of fighting, maybe, you know, see what's going on. Maybe we can, you know, we can save ourselves some trouble. Yeah. Right. Then if the DM knows, okay, I'm, I, I can just give this, this NPC a quirk now and that'll help bring them to life. They don't even have to go back to the table of quirks in the book if they don't want to, they simply know that that mechanic, that very quick, very easy thing that they can do right in the moment right, will help to bring this NPC to life. Once they, once they know the parameters of it, these things are easy to apply as long as they're, as long as they're simple and straightforward. It's great. And you take the trope of, you know, not even trope, it's the, the rat on a stick. Uh, <laughs> you have a rat catcher who yeah. is in the town and they are a vegan rat catcher. Yeah. There's a story about that. Um, in the original version that I wrote for the RPG club, uh, Tybalt, the rat catcher is actually selling rat on a stick. And of course it's, you know, these are middle school students like, ah, rat on a stick. I want one. Right. And I want two. And they're all like, you know, fighting with who can eat the most rat on a stick. Right. <laughs> um, when it came time to get the adventure illustrated and Hazakor is illustrated by an amazing artist named Jackie Musto, who does all the interior stuff, all the interior yeah. illustrations in the cover. When she turned the cover illustration over, you've got the book there. You can actually look yeah. at it. There's a rat in it in, down in the corner. And the oh. rat was so cute. I realized I cannot have rat on a stick in this adventure anymore. So it evolved. From, I rewrote that section so that Tybalt now sells salad on a stick. Yeah. which is, you know, looks like a branch with a bunch of berries and some lettuce that's kind of stuck on it. But if you eat it, it actually is good food. So and, characters and who don't how... have a lot of cash can, uh, can, can invest yeah, in it. I, lo I love how this NPC, like they catch the rats around the keep, which is an important job to have. Yeah. And then they go out to the woods, liberate the rats so they can run free away from the keep. And yeah. by while out there and then picks all the things for the salad that then gets sold on these, you know, yeah. vegan sticks. I love it. Yeah. Um, thank you. You also add all kinds of possible hooks, even beyond the adventure. So you'll say things like this person is an ex bandit. Um, you could expand upon this or you have a dark residence that mysteriously food is dropped off, but nobody knows who's inside. And you say, mm -hmm. you could, you can get, you can decide who's here and use this to expand the story. Yeah. Uh, after you're done with the main adventure. I love, love those touches. Yeah. I, I love them too. I mean that all, all of that kind of stuff is just because for me personally, that's the kind of adventuring I like when I'm, yeah. when I'm you know, playing an adventure as a character, I like those little sort of unexplained corners of things where you can ask questions and where, you know, 
you can kind of engage with the DM to sort of to sort of build a little bit of a side story, right? I I loved that the a feeling. I felt like I could get a window into your brain with things like that. Like for example, on gems and jewelry, um, you have a sidebar there that says, "Hey, the town won't take these as currency because what am I going to do with a gem? Right? Um, you know, I can't I can't eat with this necklace." But in town are two characters who will buy them to NPCs um, and interacting with them has interesting ramifications and so on. Yeah. And, and you talk through that angle and I'm like, yeah, you know, that, it, the game used to be sort of more like that in the AD&D days where you would have to get these sold by a gem cutter or you might have the proficient to like try to finish a rough gem or something like that. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, like I said, like this is this it's it's a love letter to the kinds of adventures that I that I started out playing with and that I really enjoyed and still yeah. do. You know, well, it made I think, me think, I think of I, I almost and I had this thought when I first saw the edition. I, I mean I love fifth edition, but the adventures packs and so on that you get are almost so complete that it hurts this type of shopping and interaction, right? And the way we yeah. do treasure is so kind of automatic in our brains that we just assume like and you find 50 gold pieces and gems like adventures will even say that yeah it, like they're doing the exchange for you sure. and it all just becomes coin magically right yeah and, and you lose a little something with that i think one of the things my take on that is always that yeah there's there's these things are interesting at different stages of the game i think there's sure. a point at which when your characters are very high level you don't want to have to worry about you know where you're going to sell this chest full of gems Right, mm -hmm. that you've just taken off this off this dragon or what have you. Um, there's a point at which, if you need 50 feet of rope, the DM should not be saying, "Did you buy 50 feet of rope? Can <laughs> right. I see the receipt?" Ah, oh, then you don't have 50 feet of rope. At some point, you just say, "Yeah, I'm sure you picked up rope at some point in the last six months because yeah. you've been visiting all these places where you could have bought rope. We're not going to worry about it." But I remember <laughs> in third edition there would be situations. I've I've run a couple of adventures where there'd be a pit, and you have to climb down into it, and we would say, "All right, who has rope?" And the answer would be nobody. And right. it would be fun and yeah, engaging I've... to deal with it versus now every single pack has 50, 50 feet, of, feet rope. of rope. There isn't a PC in the party that doesn't have 50 feet of rope, right? We yeah. have 300 feet of rope. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think for me, especially that kind of stuff is the most fun when you're starting out, yeah, right? Sure. When you're a brand new, not, not with lower level characters specifically, but when you're a brand new player, it's yeah. fun engaging with the world on that level. Oh, I spent you know? hours looking at those AD&D tables and basic oh, yeah. tables of, of, you know, what could I buy? Yeah. How will I use the 10 foot pole? And can I yeah. buy cheese? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a mirror, right? You know, oh, yeah, I'm going to reflect oh, yeah, yeah. that Medusa. You know, I'm going to. Yeah. Uh, all right. So then uh, we get a, a eventually after, you know, whenever it, the DM feels like, all right, we've had a good time to explore this town. We've learned Purdy's Rest. Now we get the clue that leads us to go explore the hidden halls of Hazakor, this old ruined dungeon. Yeah. And you have a number of great sidebars here, and I just want to share them so folks get a feel for the kind of thing that you do here. You have one sure. on rest and relaxation. When should we take short and long rest? How, how to work with that? Um, mapping, this is great. You encourage the DM to have the players try it at first. Mm -hmm. um, see how they enjoy doing that. You provide through your web page and the download file a blank map that sort of has the start in the With right the place. Area on it's it. yeah. great. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, different ways to do experience and leveling, how to handle distracted players, which for young players, uh, yeah. And, yeah. and it's funny cause you call it, uh, playing with dice. Yeah. 
and you mean it in sort of two ways. One is to say that, hey, give them things to do by rolling dice. But also, I noticed when I would run middle school kids and younger kids, whenever they started making dice towers, right, I would start kind of wrapping it up or getting ready to wrap it up. Because that was like a visual cue of like, eh, they're starting to falter in their attention span. Getting a little restless, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how to handle if characters miss a clue or specifically in this adventure if they can't find a key. Yeah. Um, even guidelines for advantage and disadvantage that sounds very obvious maybe to somebody who's probably hearing this, but when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, those are important things to cover with new players and important things for a DM to understand yeah. of how to reward ideas and so on. It's, it's great stuff, Scott. Well, thank you. <laughs> this is more of a comment than a question, <laughs> but it really, I mean, these are, I've, yeah, I mean, I'm impressed yeah, I that it's. I found myself reading these and going, wow, Scott kind of, I feel like he, like, I was like, what did, what didn't he think of? And I came up with nothing. <laughs> it, it was, it was really a process of, of just thinking about all the things that I wish I'd known, like I said before, you know, yeah. things that I, things that have tripped me up at some point as well. I mean, the experience of having edited so much, um, so much fifth edition, you know, certain things that will trip people up. You get feedback on adventures. You, you read about yeah. people's experiences and doing things. And you're like, Oh, I did not explain that as well as I should have. Cause they did something that was absolutely not the intent. Um, there's one example in a fight later on where you're fighting giant spiders. Very important to understand that giant spiders poison damage does not double if the spider crits on its attack. Yeah. Because for low level characters, that. that's, that's the difference between being badly wounded and being really dead. Yeah. Murder. You know, and nothing, yeah. nothing messes up a low level, nothing messes up a brand new game with brand new players, first time DM, then killing a bunch of people off by accident. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because point. the DM feels like, Oh, you know, I, I, I feel like I did something wrong. The players are like, yeah, oh, this game is not as exciting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know, it's just so learning, knowing those things, having those things in mind can be really, really important. And you, um, at the, in most of the early parts there of the adventure, th there are clues and even scraps of maps that guide the play right yeah um like one of the first things they'll ha they'll that'll happen to them is they'll find an abandoned campsite where former adventurers who they may have heard of in talking to people in town um here's this scrap of a map and that then serves as a reinforcement to say okay uh we we should look for these various elements and then there are clues towards traps and things like that yeah. how did you end up developing these um, I think most of those, again, just speak to speak to the kinds of adventures that I like. I'm a huge yeah. fan of maps and clues and keys in an adventure, yeah. especially in a dungeon crawl. The, the The overall setup of this of this adventure, once they're out of once they're out of Purdy's rest, is there's this there's this abandoned ruin out in the middle of a forest. Right? Hasn't been. No one knows that it's there. It's been lost for ages. Um, and in the course of exploring it, you discover that it's cut up into sections and each section requires a special magical key to get into. Okay. So there's monsters in the sections that haven't used the keys. They've like tunneled their way down from up top, or there's other secret entrances that the, mm -hmm. the characters haven't had a chance to find yet. But from their perspective, it starts out having to go sort of in this sort of step-by-step -step fashion where you're in one area and then in that area, you find the key that leads you to the next area. And that's a trope that I love. It shows yeah. up in all kinds of adventures that I that I work on because it's a useful trope because it lets you control the scale and scope of the adventure without limiting what the characters can do. It's not like an artificial thing saying you can't get through this door. It's a 
big, big door with a giant dragon thing on the front and it glows. And when you <laughs> touch it, 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 it summons up a magic mouth that says it's calling the guards and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? It's a big kind of a story event. I love that. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that it let me do with the adventure was focus the area so that as play progresses, as, as the DM takes the, the players and the characters through these different areas, things get more complex. So the combat in the very first sections is very straightforward. Single foes, right? Uh, foes that are all, you know, you have to fight them. Or sorry, if you want to fight them, it's okay to destroy them. You don't have to get into that question of, you know, do we want right. to kill these, you know, these monsters? Do we want to leave them unconscious? Should we make them try to run away? So you're fighting undead, you're fighting a news, you're fighting some animated objects at the outset, right? And really again, straightforward fights so that the DM can get an easy handle on, okay, this is how combat works. Right. Like yeah. the first time DM can get, okay, this is how initiative goes back and forth. This is what I do. This is what I roll. This is what I look for. And then in the later sections, the combats get more complicated just by adding little bits of extra things. And the next one's, oh, we'll add some environmental stuff. And once a DM has already handled the basics of combat, they can deal with one little bit of environmental stuff. At some point later on, it's like, okay, what happens if the monsters in these two rooms come together? Right. Think about what that's going to do to how difficult it makes this fight. And one, it's like, you know, if the if the goblins are awake, this is what happens. If the goblins are sleeping, this is what happens. Right? I love that you break it down. Like you explain to the DM, hey, I'm doing this. I'm giving you one monster type at a time so that it is easy for you to run. Uh, and, and that I thought that was very smart to say. The, because you're also encouraging the DM to create their own encounters in the future. And so that advice of one at a, one at a time, if you're just running skeletons, it's much easier to run than if you're running skeletons and ghouls altogether. Yeah. And, yeah. But later it can happen. And, and yeah, and you talk about how these various monsters might come together. That might be overwhelming. So here's how to handle that. And I really love it because you just call, you call out those situations. Yeah. Another one I really liked. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You first. I was going to say that you're, the first room has an, a secret door that lies open. Right, yeah. So it's a really clever way to say, hey, there are secret doors in this place. Yeah. You know, the other ones are probably closed and need to be found. Yeah. And then yeah, you know, the I double like, doors at the key thing. Yeah, so it's very like, obvious. Go get the keys. Yeah, I mean, for me, for me, that's a really easy and obvious thing to do because it's, it's the – every adventure for me has a story to it, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's – Story is 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 essential to RPGs. It's it's impossible. I think it's impossible to play any RPG, even like a game that's not specifically a story game, without accidentally creating a story, whether you want to or not. <laughs> right? That 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 yep. kind of shared narrative uh, experience is at the heart of everything. So, in addition, at at the same time that Hazacore sort of builds the mechanics up from a from a from a point of simplicity and then makes them more complex, it does the same thing with the lore of this dungeon crawl, this underground complex, right? So you start out, you find a couple of bits of information. As you go on further, you find more information that builds on what came before. And it makes the whole thing, I hope, more interesting to the players as they're going along because they get to learn more about what this place was and what was going on here. They find out who Hazakor was and what he was doing, right? They discover this tragic backstory where uh, Hazakor's wife, who was the captain of the guard for this complex when it was filled with people and sorcerers doing dark magical experiments, she died of a magical malady, couldn't save her. So he becomes obsessed with, with, with finding the secret of eternal life. And then later you discover that he's inadvertently, um, um, you know, uh, 
succeeded at that because he's made himself undead, even though that yeah. wasn't his intent. Right. <laughs> and it's just that, that, that sort of, it's, it's like, if you think about the old, the old style dungeons where you had levels, like back to AD&D, like level one, then sure. level two was under that, right? You can think of the narrative of any adventure as kind of the same thing, right? You start off simple and then you add additional layers on top mm -hmm. of it. And that's really what Hazagord does. It, it does that mechanically by kind of as, as the adventure progresses, adding in more complicated stuff so that, yeah. so that a, a first time DM has a chance to say, okay, I've mastered the, you know, the, the basics of combat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dial it up a little bit. Right, I've mastered a simple social encounter. Now I'm going to do a negotiation with a with, with a right. group of uh, with a group of covetous kobolds, right, for some secret treasure that we absolutely need because they've got one of these key pieces that we need, or we're not going to be able to get into the rest of the adventure. Right? Yeah. And just sort of as it goes through, it gets more complex, it gets more rich, um, and then at the end, you kind of you know it it leads up to the the big finale where everything ties together, which is a really complicated fight with twin blue dragons which can take place not only in their lair but anywhere there's little mm -hmm. things that says like if, if the players run that's great right because <laughs> the dragons are coming with them and if they fight in this area this could happen if they fight in this area this could happen and of yeah. course that ties together the lore as well because the dragons are there because they want to basically pick up this old this dark research that was done in years past and that and certainly had a very stop it. clever call to keep on the borderlands but instead of being uh caves in you know this canyon Mm -hmm. They are sections of this ruined dungeon and, and these various inhabitants have come and settled and the final ones being these two blue dragons, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, throughout this sort of the intro part, you you have a section where you then remind the PCs or the, the DM that the PCs will level to second. Um, and you have all these other recommendations that keep going on through um, when they may want to return to the keep and buy better armor and weapons. Um, how they could sell or return goods the enemies stole from merchants. So things like, hey, this stuff is from merchants. Is it okay to sell it? Sure. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, maybe it's extra great if you return it and you get paid for it anyway, right? And that's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, just lots of lots of different options. One of the one of the other things about playing with really young players, like middle school age people, I don't know if this if this lines up with your experience or not, and I certainly don't know if you were playing with, you know, all boys versus yeah. a mixed group, but... Kids at that age are, they, they like options other than just fighting things. And yeah. so that's a big part of the adventure as well, making sure that other options are presented. There's, it talks about, you know, under what circumstances monsters will run away. There's a, there's a fight specifically with an ogre who's taking a bath when the characters come across him. Right. And, you know, how to deal with that. And at some point when you get him, you can, if you, if you rip his towel off that he's using to cover himself up, then he'll get embarrassed and flee the dungeon. Right? <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. I love options, that whole ogre series. Yeah. yeah thank you. And, you know, options, options like that are important because I think it sets up for the players this this idea that's essential to the core of D and all rpgs you can do anything you want to do you shouldn't yeah. be limited to anything and one of the the only downside to the to the the fast start to an adventure like like mm -hmm. people talk about you know let's you know start off with a fight start off with a bang right do the the one potential downside to doing that with new players and especially new young players for me at least is that you can inadvertently give them the idea that the game is primarily about fighting and there's absolutely nothing wrong with playing a game that's primarily about fighting if that's the game you want to play and if you really enjoy it because combat is 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 a great time in D&D. &D. Yeah. But for people who want to get a sense that there's more to it, that they're capable of doing more, 
um, it's really, really good to show them those options up front and to make sure that, that, a, that a brand new DM is aware of those options and, 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 and can kind of play around with those and, and even and add to them if that's what they want to do. Yeah, and, and I think you want any adventure. I feel like any adventure should have enough opportunities for different types of play such that the players can't just walk into something and expect it to go one way. Yeah. Right. If, if you want to have the feeling that the world is big and diverse, and so you want to be paying attention to cues that let you know, hey, this is someone we can deal with, or this is a ravenous beast with which yeah. no reason is possible. Great. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I mean, from the from the DM's perspective, that's equally important because the DM, the DM needs to feel comfortable with making that stuff up on the fly if they want to. You know, so that if the characters decide they want to negotiate with the ravenous beast, right, the DM should be able to say, okay, how am I going to make this work, right? Yeah. And just sort of having having the opportunity to practice improvising story is really, really important. And that's something else that shows up in the adventure a lot. The idea that, okay, here's what's, here's what's on the page. Here's what's written up. Here's some other things you can do if you want to. Keep those things in mind. Yeah, you just have a as, recurring sidebar called making the story your own. yeah. It covers that, right? It talks yeah, about exactly. yeah. Talks what, about do, lots, what do lots monsters of different... do when you've been decimating them? Yeah. Do they flee? Do they, yeah. Will they come back with more friends? Will they decide, yeah, that's it. We're, you know, we don't need the grief anymore. Yeah. Does something else yeah. move into the dungeon to fill its space? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Cool. Um, yeah. And you cover things. I mean, like you have a thoughtful piece on what to do when characters die, like how to talk to that's the a, character about it and yeah that's a i mean that that's something that's something that's changed a lot since the D D days to even 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 you know, starting in third edition uh and certainly in fifth edition as well you know back in the day playing D D, you rolled up a character in three minutes right you'd roll up a character you'd play them for a week and think oh that character was kind of boring i'll roll up another character next week that was just the way we did it yeah. and i think a certain amount of dnds the 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 discussion that happens around lethality in DD extends from the idea that the game originally was more lethal intentionally, but we didn't care that much, right? right? The characters who survived low levels became our favorite characters. They're the ones we took to high levels and they got strong enough that it wasn't, it, we didn't worry that much about yeah. them dying, right? But especially for younger players, when you put a lot of investment into your character, it can be really, really traumatic when that happens. And so that was something, yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about and definitely Definitely yeah. sort of talk, talk to the DM about what kind of options there are and ways to, ways to make the player feel better without necessarily bringing their old character back, right? Because mm -hmm. it, 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 it doesn't need to be a binary option. It shouldn't be, you know, your character dies, you, you're going to feel terrible. You know, your character dies, how can, you know, how can you turn that into a positive thing moving forward? How can you advance the story in a good way as a yeah. result of that? It's neat. There's a lot of really good advice here. Um, so... Really, I, I highly recommend folks take a look at this. If you design adventures, I would say it's great. You will read this and you will want to incorporate this into into your future design because it, it does it so well. But also for anybody who's listening who's maybe not a DM yet, uh, this is excellent. Um, and even if you are a DM, I think it does. You, you say it's a narrow appeal, but the, to me, this is, actually has a surprisingly <laughs> wide appeal because I'm glad. it frames things in ways you may not have considered and, and yeah. will make your game better. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, lots of, like I said, it's been lots of people who have enjoyed it. Lots of people have reached out to me telling me how much they've enjoyed it, telling me about the great time they had playing, you know, playing a, a, a campaign with their, with their kids, you know, lots of, lots of people talking about how great a time their kids had playing it. 
you know, making it their first yeah. DMing experience. So yeah, no, it's all, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm very happy with how it turned out. I'm, ha I'm absolutely ecstatic with how it looks. Jackie just did the most amazing job imaginable kind of yeah. bringing the world and this, and this, this dungeon to life. So Love really it. glad, really glad people are enjoying it. So Scott, you are usually very busy, I know, working on making other people's products better. <laughs> yeah. uh, are we going to see something else like this that you uh, carve some yeah, time out for the, your own? The I, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I am busy enough working on other people's stuff that it is sometimes a problem for me trying to find time to work on my own stuff. And I know that's the that's the most incredible first world problem anyone could possibly have in this industry. Um, yeah. And I don't I don't mean you know I don't make light of it. And I'm I'm very aware of how privileged I am to be doing what I do and how lucky I am. But uh, yeah, no, there's a sequel to Hidden Halls of Hazakor, which should have been finished some time ago and has not been. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's desperately close to getting finished. Um, and I, to all the people who have been waiting for it and who reach out to me occasionally asking me where it is, thank you for your patience. Uh, it's called Mystery of Millwarren. And in the same way that Hazakor was kind of a love letter to Keep on the Borderlands and In Search of the Unknown, Mill Warren is a love letter to the Saltmarsh series of oh, yeah. modules. Not in terms of the setting. It doesn't take place. It's not like an ocean setting. But in terms of that mystery angle, yeah, the idea that this is, not, this is not a, not a dungeon crawl. This isn't something where you're going to go in and just, okay, we know there are threats here and we've got different, you know, how do we deal with them? It's about figuring out what the threat is first. You know, solving solving that mystery and then you know being being sort of a part of being a part of something larger than just a location so it's more so role sturdy. playing it's more sort of interaction social encounters and it should if it if it if it comes together the way i want it'll it'll give advice on you know social encounters and more complex adventure construction more complex adventure design in the same way that Hazagor gives lots of lots of advice on just running adventures in general and specifically on sort of like site-based site-based adventures and will you restart at level one? No, it's actually meant to pick up after Hazakor, ah, which is cool. why so many people are asking, where uh -huh. is this? Because we finished Hazakor and we'd love to do this. <laughs> uh, and for all day. of you, I, I apologize again and thank you no. for your patience. And I hope this, I hope that this will happen. I hope I'll have oh, time to get life. back to this soon. Yeah. That is life. And, and we can only do what we can do. You can't rush the creative process too much. So yeah. Um, what, what, so do you think you'll take this all the way to tier four? Cause I feel like tier four particularly has its own, like a yeah. new set of advice that people should have for tier that's four. An, that's an excellent question. I'll be really honest. I hadn't thought about it. I'd thought mm. about this just as like a two, a two part thing, you know, cause I, I, I kind of imagined that would get to the level where you've kind of dispensed with most of the, most sure. of the general advice, but you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. When you get up into the higher tiers, you need more specific advice because yeah. there's a lot of stuff happening at those tiers that, uh, where you can't just take the advice that works for lower levels and try to scale it up. Cause when you try and scale it up, it, it kind of breaks. Yeah. And I feel like some but, of it's real, like in that there are things that come along that surprise you yeah. as a DM and you suddenly, go, Oh, I have to contend with this. How do I do that? Uh, yeah. But there are also things that I think are imagined. I mean, you know, I work with a lot of DMs or, or I see a lot of DMs through organized play who, when the organizer says, hey, who wants to run the tier, tier four adventures? It's like you can hear a coin drop, right? Like, right. like it's, it's everybody gets quiet. And everybody's it's been like, traumatized by guys, running tier four adventures in the past, probably. And yeah. these players run a lot of games. So they're, yeah. you know, they can be very comfortable with running low and mid tier, but you ask high tier and the number dwindles into a very small set of players yeah. of DMs that tend to do it. Yeah. Um, it's a really so yeah, cool idea. I think I, I am thinking about it now. Let's put it that way. Just awesome. with you having, with you having put that in. I, I would expect those, those two things, tier three and tier four, 
would probably be something I would want to do with other people because there's other people I write, I write lots of stuff for high level. I don't play it that often. Not, not because I dislike it, but just because the, I find, I find that for me, the story of the game works best at the, the lower tiers up to about like, you know, 10th, 12th level. I I don't think that's an unusual thing. I think there's lots of people who, who feel that as well. So that's something I could definitely see myself doing with some, with some collaborators. So at some point you may get an email from me. (laughs) All right. I'm excited. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really fun. It's really fun. I love that. I've, I have often had, uh, especially in 4E, I had the strange honor of being one of the first authors for New Tears as the, the um, for Living Forgotten Realms was rolling it out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the only person when this happened, but it was something else to write for a tier when no one else had really done that. Right. That was a challenge. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about how to cre- create that experience and and, and how to stay ahead of the players because the players get there before you do as, as in, in an organized play setting. The right. players are thinking about their character construction. They show up, you know, with say a paragon in fourth edition terms or an epic character having carefully considered all these options. And you, the DM who's running an adventure that you, yeah. the author wrote, uh, may not have been at that same level of game. So the author has sort of more responsibility to really, really pre-plan for how to keep it interesting. And, yeah. And also at the same time to, to make sure that, to make sure there's lots of room to improvise because you can try to plan as much as you want. And then a, you know, high level character shows up with one particular, one yeah. particular combination of class features and magic weapons. It just blows the doors off of everything the right. adventure had planned. And that and yet there, I, I always say there's always a way to keep that fun, right? Like it, it's yeah. not a problem if someone destroys the encounter, if the overall scene was fun. And so you have yeah, to, Absolutely. Yeah. But that, and that, that's, that's the specific kind of advice that a DM running, running a high tier game for the very first time, that's the advice they need. Yeah. That's, that's what awesome. you need to talk to them about. It's, it's an awesome idea. Thank you. Well, Scott, thank you. Um, highly recommend the hidden halls of Hazakor to everybody. Um, I want to thank our listeners and all of our patrons. If you like the show, please consider supporting the Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP. Scott, where can people find you on social media or otherwise follow your work? Uh, people can most easily find me on Twitter as Scott F. Gray, uh, where I generally intersperse ranting at the world with occasional bits of RPG insight. Um, and you can also check out my extremely rarely updated website, uh, which is at insaneangel.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me blogging at alphastream.org. Uh, this week, I'm going to have some fun uh, arguing with Mike Shea. <laughs> and you can subscribe there and get free stuff. Yeah. And then you can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream. We are at the forums, Sean and I at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And the podcast Twitter is at MasteringDD. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. Hey, Scott, what are we going to do now? We are going to go kill some monsters uh, with a nice sidebar talking about options for not killing the monsters and advice for making the encounter your own. Oh, I love it. Thank you. And that's the show. Hit the stop.